Okay, you guys, welcome back. Welcome for the first time. Uh, whatever your situation is, we are super glad you're here. Today was interesting for me. Um, Amber and I had church planter training that we were doing um, with Art Canada. We were up at, um, in Airdrie at Venue Church doing some training. And I get back and Kim, our church administrator, was like, oh, I've got an email for you. I'm like, great. What is it? And some random guy that's never been to our church ever, ever, ever wrote a long email about how we are not a true biblical church because we have female pastors. And we're not even a Baptist church. Why don't we just go ahead and join the PAOC instead of the CNBC? Because clearly we're charismatic and we're lying about who we are. It was really like <laughs> unexpected and obnoxious. And thankfully, it's kind of one of those emails that I just, you know, I laugh at, roll my eyes, send him a quick response and let that be that. But, you know, I told you guys way back in the beginning that like there was this sense of like, I don't know, is there really um, an appetite for this? Is there a need for this? And I just, I keep seeing again and again that people need to be reminded of what the scripture actually says, not what we think it says or what we've been told it says. And so that's what we've been focusing on, particularly for the last couple of weeks, is what does the scripture actually say that women do? We spent the first week talking about what women are supposedly allowed to do, according to some verses in the um, New Testament. But last week, we spent a lot of time looking at examples of women who exercise strong leadership both in the spiritual realm, governmental realm, economic realm, family life, women in the Old Testament who exercise this authority and leadership and God bless them for it. And if you thought those were interesting, I think you're going to be even more surprised by the examples that we're going to talk about tonight in the New Testament, primarily because the most important ones most people have never heard of. And the reason most people have never heard of these women who led so well in the New Testament is that they're kind of buried in weird parts of some of the New Testament, parts that we don't normally pay a lot of attention to, but are incredibly important. And so we're actually going to spend some time talking about why we ignore those parts of the letters and all of that different stuff. But what ends up happening is that because these women they don't fit in their stories, their leadership and service to the church. They don't fit in very nicely or cleanly with what the Apostle Paul says in First um, Corinthians 14 and First Timothy 2. Um, because of that, it's like, well, it would just take too long to explain how this doesn't violate that. And so we kind of ignore these ladies and their testimony is a little bit lost. And so tonight we want to write that wrong. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to run through three or four examples that you probably have heard of. You should have notes. Um, they're back there on the table if you don't have any. There's a pen there so you can fill in a few blanks if you want to and then take as many notes as you might want. These first few ladies are obviously names and stories that we know fairly well. And so I want to give you some quick highlights and maybe even give you some considerations based on their story that you might not have considered. And then I want us to roll into these other women, these names that we're probably not super familiar with. So why don't we start with the first one? The lady herself, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and of course, all of Jesus's half-siblings. You guys realize this, right? Jesus had other brothers and sisters that, you know, Mary and Joseph had after, um, you know, he was born. And um, so Mary's story is told in Luke chapter number one and chapter number two. We're not going to read these um, just yet. We'll wait until we get into some of the other stories later. Um, like Miriam and Deborah, she wrote, Mary wrote a song 
that became scripture. Remember in the Old Testament, Miriam and Deborah both experienced God's deliverance and victory, and they composed and perhaps even performed a song, and that song was included in the inspired word of God. Mary is the exact same way. You go to Luke chapter number one, and you read what we call the Magnificat, which is like a really fancy word, because in Latin, that's the first um that's the first word or phrase that she says, my soul praises the Lord, the Magnificat, right? And so um, she has basically left her stamp, her teaching, her um, truth even in the scripture itself. Uh, we mentioned last week that oftentimes we think, well, there are no women that we know of that wrote the Bible. And that's true in one sense, but the words and the teaching and the stories and the influence and the victories of women are all over uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Mary is one of those stories, of, co of course, okay? Um, not only did she compose the Magnificat of Luke 1, 46 through 55, um, if you pay attention, Luke chapter number one and Luke chapter number two tell the story of um, Elizabeth and her husband and John the Baptist being born, tells the story of the angel appearing to Mary and to Joseph and then the birth of Jesus. When Luke, who ended up writing the gospel that bears his name, he wasn't there. You understand what I'm saying? He wasn't like a family friend and he was hanging out at dinner and hearing the stories of the angelic appearances and things like that. It's like he had to talk to people who were actually there. And it could be that he talked to Mary and Joseph's children. He could have talked to James or something like that. But more likely, he talked to Mary herself. Mary has a very long history in the early church. She lived for quite a while. Best we know, Joseph died really early on. That's why we don't hear anything about him after uh, Jesus was 12 years old. There's no mention of Joseph ever again in the New Testament. So either like the Bible writers ghosted him or he actually died, and that's probably more likely. Okay, so um, he, she was probably the source material for two whole chapters in the Bible, telling the story of the angelic visits and, and all of those different things. Now, the reason that um, we're, we're even mentioning her story instead of just listing it on the page and then moving on is that complementarians argue, and again, a complementarian is somebody who believes that women cannot preach, lead, or pastor, according to the Bible, okay? Complementarians argue that Mary is just doing what every mother does. That is, she's raising and teaching children. You may have heard it said before, according to people who subscribe to this theology, that women, they cannot teach men, but they can teach boys, right? Amber even told a story last week about how uh, her mom had some issues about the age of the Sunday school class that she was teaching with the boys because the church was saying essentially they are on the verge of or they are at the point where they are becoming men and women cannot teach men. They can only teach uh, little boys, okay? So complementarian theology prevents women from teaching men, but they are allowed to teach boys without issue. That raises some obvious but very interesting questions. So the first question is this, when does a boy who's able to be taught by a woman become a man who is no longer able to be taught by a woman? Where is that line? Where does that age fall? And the truth is complementarians are all over the map on this. It just depends on which theologian, pastor, or church you're asking. So when is it that this boy becomes a man and a woman is no longer able to teach? In, in the example that Amber gave last week, it was in grade five in that church. Grade five is like, what, 11 or something? 10? 10 years old. They're saying, oh, he's a man now. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> most complementarians would draw the line 
at about 13. And the reason they choose 13 is because in Jewish culture, at age 13, a boy goes through his bar mitzvah. That means he becomes a son of the law. It means he's responsible to God for his actions. He becomes not a boy anymore. Now he's a man. And at 13, a girl undergoes her bat mitzvah, which is just the female version, all right? Now, what's interesting about that is that there is nowhere in the Bible that that age is given. None whatsoever. It arose because of tradition in ancient Israelite culture. So there's nothing in the Bible that says 13 is some sort of magic number. It just doesn't exist. It's culturally arbitrary. So other churches would say, okay, maybe maybe the age is 16 because that's when society trusts him with a driver's license. But I mean, that's not true in every culture. They have different ages at which you can drive. Um, or they say it's 18 when you, um, did I say 18 a moment ago? It's when you're 16, you get your license. But um, then they'll say, okay, well, it's 18 and you reach majority. So you can sign legal contracts. You can go fight in the army. In the U.S., you can buy yourself a gun, whatever. Okay, so it's like that's the age at which a boy becomes a man. And look, I, I would agree that probably by the time a young guy is 18, he probably has crossed into manhood, whatever that might mean. Um, however, that is, again, an arbitrary number. There is nothing magic or special about 18. Science tells us that our brains don't even fully finish developing until we're out of our mid-20s or out of our early 20s and into our mid-20s, sorry. Um, so like if we're going by biology and physiology, you could say, well, he hits puberty at 12 or his brain actually reaches maturity at 23. So it's like, when does a boy become a man? By the way, that's why he shouldn't marry a 22-year-old. Anyway, um, <laughs> when does a boy become a man? Who knows? Now, here's the deal. If God is so very, very opposed to a woman teaching a man, then you would expect that at some place in scripture, he would very clearly articulate when a boy becomes a man so that we don't accidentally violate this very important command. But it's not there. And I think that's very telling. You would expect there to be some clarity and the clarity doesn't exist. So when I'm kind of discussing, debating, if you're having conversations with somebody who subscribes to a complementarian worldview, um, one of the questions you can ask them is, okay, you, you believe that a woman can teach a boy but not a man. At what point does a boy become a man? And why do you believe it's at that age? And let them talk. And what you're going to find out really quickly is it's pretty arbitrary. My question would be like, why boys in the first place? Like, mm -hmm. why not take a harder stance if that if that's where you're going to stand and women just can't teach men, then then why can they teach boys at all? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think it goes back to what the scriptures teach, like in in Genesis one through three, um, certainly in um, in Paul's letters in the New Testament. So Ephesians five and first Corinthians 12 and um, I mean, 14 rather and first Timothy two. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And the word that he uses there, it, the Greek word literally means like a male of majority age. Like it means a man, the way that we think about it. We've talked about the fact that man can mean mankind. It can mean humanity. That's the way it's used in the early parts of Genesis. But there are several places where when Paul says the word man, he's literally talking about a grown dude. So I think that's probably where the distinction comes from. And we don't, like, I think... Um, it's also that you can't, I don't know how society could function if women could not lead boys. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, I, I think it, it is such an obvious necessity 
that we have to craft our theology so that it would allow this, but not that. Maybe and, that makes and sense. And I guess my other question would be, like, wouldn't a mother need to express authority until her son, like, if there's some immature boy mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. out there mm-hmm. and living at home, yep. dad's not around, and mom has to be the authority figure. Yeah. And now we're saying, oh, but the Bible says, no, mm-hmm. like you can't express authority because he's 18 now. Yeah. Well, Louise is still in high school. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't make sense. No, I agree. And, and it actually leads to the next question that I had. Um, it's, it's very much in line with it. And that is, uh, how can a woman exercise authority during a boy's formative years and that not constitute ongoing leadership later in his years? Okay. So what I mean is, um, we, we spend a lot of time talking about how important a mom is and like how she instills values and hard work and integrity and love and gentleness and all these things inside of her son. And the idea would be that you instill that in him before he hits 12. And then when he's 16 and 18 and 25 and 45, he's still carrying out those same things that mom taught him. Like she is exercising influence over him. It might be subconsciously. It may be at a distance, but it's still direct influence. Like it's still very obviously there. So we can actually see this in Mary's story. So if you read the Magnificat, this this song that Mary writes, it's kind of wild. You know, it's it, there's a part of it that's like, who am I that God would choose me as his handmaiden and all these things, right? But then there's the, he has overthrown the mighty and he has tossed down the oppressor and he has lifted up the lowly and he has heard the cry of the poor. And it's kind of this like radical, like, whoa, get it, girl. You know what I mean? It's almost like a protest song in some ways. And so um, all you, you get all of these themes, all right? In Luke chapter number one in the Magnificat. I told you a moment ago, Mary had other children James, the guy who wrote the book of James, was Jesus' half-brother, okay? So he was Jesus' younger brother. And um, he's half because Joseph wasn't Jesus' daddy, but he was James' daddy. Okay, so uh, go read the book of James and pay close attention to the themes of the book of James and compare them to what is written in Luke 1 and 2. And you're going to find God caring for the poor and the oppressed in the book of James, not valuing somebody because of their economic or social status. God being willing to intervene and help people when they're in need. It's like these same things. And yes, these are universal themes. Yes, they're biblical themes. But don't you think it's a little bit likely that James was influenced by his mama back in the day and that came out in some of his writings? I I just think that makes sense. I can't prove it. I'm not going to build a theology on it. But that seems coherent and logical to me. Moms, you influence your kids, your boys in particular, when you're young. And that influence, it should continue. If it doesn't continue, you're probably doing something wrong so that it, it becomes an ongoing set of influence. So, like, how is it that mom can continue to exercise influence and leadership in her son's life, but now he's a man? To me, that just creates a really weird dynamic that isn't readily explained according to complementarianism. And okay? again, there's a whole portion in scripture that Mary is teaching everyone because it's in the Bible. Totally. Yes. hundred percent. We talked about this last week, like her words in the Magnificat continue to go on and inspire and inform and educate and lead me 
as a man, as well they should. I, I told you last week, there better not be any part of the Bible that I look at and say, oh, I don't need to pay attention to that because that came from a woman. <laughs> That's not good. Um, it would be impossible to even determine for sure whether something came from a man or a woman or whatever. And then we're carving up the scripture. We don't want to do that either. So those are a few thoughts on Mary. Obviously, her story is well known. Um, she did not exercise any formal office of leadership in the in the New Testament church, okay? So like, she was never like, the, the first lady of the church of Jerusalem or something like that. But there's real, it's very clear that she was held in incredibly high esteem by the early church. And in fact, I think our church today doesn't hold her in high enough esteem because we're reactionary against Catholics. You know what I mean? We just don't want to get too close to where they're at. And so we end up downplaying her significance quite a bit. Second lady I want to talk quickly about is Anna. Her story is told in Luke 26, uh, Luke 26, Luke chapter two, verses 36 through 38. And uh, I'll point out to you, if you want to go read those verses, you can. Uh, she's called a prophet. Specifically, the Bible calls her a prophet. Uh, just like Miriam, Deborah, Isaiah's wife, we'll see later, Philip in the book of Acts has four daughters. They are called prophets as well. And um, prophet is a big title, you guys. This is not like a small little thing. Right. Like it, it's important, okay? And when it uses this term for her, it indicates her gifting, it indicates her role, it indicates her the respect that she carried in that society, all of those different things. Um, what you'll notice as you read Luke 2 is that Anna, the prophetess, becomes the first evangelist for Jesus. She is at the temple the day Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to be dedicated, right? We undergo a circumcision ritual and all that sort of stuff. And she sees them walking up and she begins to prophesy. She begins to speak a word from God that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one who's going to redeem people, the one that everybody's been waiting on. Everybody's going to be blessed because of this child. And so she speaks these words. Mary and Joseph are like, hey, thanks. And then they go into the temple. And the Bible says she goes on and she talked with everyone about the boy that she had just seen. She's the first evangelist. She's the first preacher of Jesus, legitimately. The first human to proclaim Jesus as the good news that everybody's been waiting on was Anna the prophetess, all right? Um, this raises another super interesting question for us in modern times, because uh, what do we do with women as evangelists or the role of a woman to share the good news in the world? So if we're taking 1 Corinthians 12 and uh, first, I did it again, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, literally, and a woman cannot teach a man, she cannot exercise any authority. She must remain silent. She must be in submission. All of these things, okay? If we're taking that literally, what do we do with the fact that very obviously the Great Commission was given to both men and women? And there's nothing in the scripture that says, now women, when you go fulfill the Great Commission, make sure you only do it to other women. There's nothing. And in fact, there are blatant examples in the New Testament where women are talking to and even teaching men. We'll talk about them tonight. And so um, complementarians have this weird position that they're in where they have to say, okay, clearly in scripture, women are authorized to evangelize, even to evangelize men, but they can't exercise authority or teach. So this must be some kind of separate or distinct communication that is not the same as teaching or preaching. That doesn't hold up. 
That does not hold up at all. The, the word for preaching in the, in the New Testament, it, it literally means to proclaim or to publish the news, right? And so um, there's no hint or sense that women are doing something less when they're evangelizing. They're, like if, you, if, if Amber evangelizes a massage client, he is there for a massage and she's working on his shoulders and um, she tells him the good news. I don't think there's any way that you could argue that she is not teaching him something he needs to know mm-hmm. in clear violation of what Paul says right. in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Timothy 2 rather, or that she is exercising spiritual authority over him. I mean, it's just, that's what it is, right? So like um, we get into this weird situation where women are clearly evangelists. They're clearly called to preach and teach and complementarians would say, yeah, it's fine. If you're on the plane, ladies next to a guy and God opens the door for you to have a gospel conversation, then you should do it. But how does that not violate the commandments that they hold to so tightly within the church? Again, it creates this very strange. Yeah, and I want to take a moment right here because we're talking about evangelism and it's so important. I mean, this is a calling that we all have on our life. Every single person It's the Great Commission. And um, I've known women in the past in complementarian churches who went to seminary, got master's degrees in missions and evangelism and scripture and then had a calling on their heart. I should go and and seek after where I'm supposed to be a missionary and then chose not to go because they weren't married, mm-hmm. which breaks my heart. Yeah. Like there, there are women who are in the world today who are educated, who know the scripture, who have a calling mm-hmm. on their life. And yet they are told by the church or the pastor that they're within that they are a woman who cannot do this by themselves. They have to have a man beside them in order to fulfill their calling. Right. In, in complementarian circles, churches, mission agencies, and things like that, you can send a single woman out to the mission field, but she's only allowed to work with women and children. She couldn't plant a church. She couldn't evangelize a man in many cases because it creates too many issues with the giving base back home and all those different things. And yeah, I think it's a shame. Like we, we've mm-hmm. talked before, we will talk again in a coming week about the fact that like, you guys, the world is dying without Jesus. Right. You know what I'm saying? And, and we are going to literally sideline half of our workforce um, over disputed texts. I just, to me, it doesn't make sense. Like, um, I, I think if we have a real burning desire to reach the world with the good mm-hmm. news, then we're going to do everything we can short of sin to reach everybody we can. And that would include saying, ladies, go preach, go teach. Let's, let's reach as many people as we possibly can. And, and complementarians would say, well, you have misheard the calling. Like I've, I've actually heard that and it's been spoken to me. And I just want to tell a little bit, I'll keep it short, a little bit of my story. (laughs) Um, So, so we went to Bible college. That's where we met. We met in Bible college in Arlington, Texas, and it was a complementarian school. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they were teaching. I was not allowed to take homiletics or hermeneutics, learning how to um, preach. Yeah. Homiletics is the, the art and science of developing and delivering a sermon. Hermeneutics is the ability to properly study and interpret scripture. Just for the sake of clarity, you could have taken hermeneutics, but not homiletics. Okay, okay. cool. So anyway, it, yeah. I, and I was but, but, but sorry, just a, the reason that they would let you take hermeneutics is so that you can properly exposit scriptures to other women. I'm just, that's why they would let you do it. I'm, I'm serious. But I was definitely not allowed to have a pastoral degree. So oh, no, that was yeah. not... Uh, 
I was not eligible because mm -hmm. I was a woman to earn a pastoral degree mm -hmm. at the school that we went to. And so from then on, and, and each church up until Connect Church, I, I had this um, degree that I really couldn't use. And it was a Bible degree. I majored in Bible, but then I minored in music. And so I have this degree and then we go off and we're doing ministry together, but it's really, he takes a job and I follow along because usually churches don't hire both of you. Right. And so it's a huge opportunity for us. And it's not why we church planted, <laughs> but, but I've seen God calling me into something so much bigger mm -hmm. that I didn't even realize I had on my life sure. when we moved here yep. and God opening door after door after door. And it's something that we didn't even realize until we started Connect Church. No, it seems like, oh, well, you guys are, you know, you're pretty clear on what you believe and clearly you put a lot of thought and effort into this and stuff. We've done this out of necessity. Mm -hmm. This isn't even like, I'm just sick of getting emails like from randos about this. This is like, how are we going to function together? And we fought over this, no lie. Um, we've disagreed over this. You're, you're going to discover before we get done in this group, there's still a few very minor places that she and I might disagree on some of this. That's okay. I told you the first week, this is second order doctrine stuff. This is not make or break orthodoxy. If we disagree, it's not the end of the world. Um, but we've had to figure this out because we've had to navigate it firsthand. Like many of you guys have. You've tried to figure out like, I feel a desire or a calling. I even think I have a gifting, but people are telling me no, or I've always been afraid that I couldn't and, and those sorts of things. And so, you know, in, in the words of T.D. Jakes, woman, thou art loose. Like, we just want you to be free <laughs> to like, I'm serious. Like, uh, we, we want you to be free to like, do your thing. Like, that, that's really what it comes down to. Okay, um, one more real common, uh, one more real common and familiar example. That's the woman at the, the women at the tomb. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Um, obviously, uh, Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, Jesus has risen from the dead. And it's not the disciples who go there to, to anoint his body or to see what's going on. It's a group of women. And when they get there, the angels tell them, you need to go and get the guys. Go tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead just the way he said he would. And the word that, it, that the angel uses there in this passage in Matthew 28 is go and proclaim, go and preach. The word is literally preach or proclaim. Go publish the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so the first evangelist of Jesus as the Messiah was female. The first evangelist of Jesus as the resurrected Savior was also female. Like that, you guys, at, at this time, a woman's testimony wasn't even considered valid in a court of law. Like if, if you know, um, I backed into another car and Amber saw me do it and she testified that she saw me do it, the judge would literally say, yeah, but you're a woman. Like, I don't know if I can really trust what you're saying here. This is true. Um, so uh, to have women be the ones who share the good news of the resurrection first is huge. It was frankly quite scandalous in the early church, but um, I think we need to take note of it. These women were evangelists. They were telling the good news, the evangelion. And so um, they deserve recognition as the first to proclaim the, the resurrection. All right, now let's get into the stuff that you probably never heard of. Stories that you might not have read, sermons that have probably not been preached. The first is a couple that you might have heard of. I don't know, maybe. The couple is called Priscilla and her husband, Aquila. So that blank there is Priscilla, uh, P-R-I-S-C-I-L-L-A, 
and then Aquila. And their story is told in Acts chapter number 18. Acts chapter 18, and I'm going to put the verses here on the screen so that we can, these last three examples, we're going to go kind of slowly through. Um, so that, you know, we've been trying to blitz through the early ones and probably should have gone faster. But anyway, um, let's talk about what the scripture says about this couple. Acts chapter number 18, verses 1 to 3, we're introduced to, um, the Bible tells us, Paul left Athens and he went to the city of Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, who was born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. So Aquila is the gentleman, Priscilla is the lady, the wife. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. This is a well-known fact from history. Claudius Caesar said, all the Jews, you need to get out of the city. And so they were forced to leave, and they settled then in Corinth. And eventually they settled in Ephesus, but we'll talk about that in a moment. So the scripture says, Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. So like Paul made his living, or at least part of his living, by making tents, like canvas and fabric for tents. Like not a camping tent, but this is like a marketplace tent. You know what I'm saying? A bazaar or a flea market, we might think of it. But like that's how markets are if you go to the third world today. And of course, that's how they were in his day as well. So Paul meets a man named Aquila and uh, his wife named Priscilla, and um, they were Jewish believers. They, they met in the city of Corinth. Now, we're going to jump ahead to the end of the chapter, and you can read the stuff in between. It talks about Paul's ministry in the city, and it, like it's important. You should read that stuff. But I want to skip down uh, to verses 24 to 26. And so what we read here is, meanwhile, while Paul is doing his ministry— Another Jew, a man named Apollos, who was an eloquent speaker, who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt, okay? So we're in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, same city, okay? He had been in Alexandria, Egypt. He was Jewish, he was a Christian, and he was a great speaker. So he shows up in the city of Ephesus, and the Bible says he had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, we're told he knew only about John's baptism. What this means is he didn't know about Jesus, his death and resurrection. He knew about John the Baptist who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you want to follow him, you need to be baptized. So that was the message he was preaching. It was accurate, but it was incomplete. It was the Messiah is here on earth and he's going to save us from our sins. Apollos did not know that Jesus had died and risen from the dead. So again, an accurate message, but an incomplete one. So watch this. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, the man and the woman, when they heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they, plural, the Greek word here is plural. It's not the man, it is them, the couple, the ministry powerhouse team. They took him aside and they explained the way of God even more accurately. This is really big, you guys. Um, this is a man, a preacher, a good one, getting up, delivering a sermon. He walks down and a woman and her husband pull him aside and they say, that was so good, pastor, so good. But you know, I think you're wrong or at least 
your knowledge is lacking in a couple of these areas. Let me tell you the rest of the story. And they instruct him. They correct his doctrine. They fill in the gaps of his understanding. Do you see very clearly, this is a woman teaching a man. Not just teaching a man. This is a woman teaching a man in ministry. Like, this is a shock. Like, this, if you are just fluent in complementarianism and that's all you've ever known and experienced, this should really, like, throw you because it's so clear. It's so direct, okay? They actually, they, plural, pull him aside and they explained the way of God more accurately to him. The word explained here is the same word that's used of Peter in Acts chapter number 11, verse 4, when he explains the scriptures. He's preaching, and the Bible says he explains to the audience. And then it's it's the same word that's used of Paul in Acts chapter 28, verse 23. This is uh, her doing precisely what these titans of the faith were doing in the New Testament, all right? Um, Now, there's one other thing of note here with Priscilla and Aquila. They are mentioned as a couple seven times in the Bible, several times in the book of Acts, also in um, oh, Romans, I'm trying to remember if they're mentioned in first or second Corinthians, but anyway, they're mentioned seven times for certain. Five of the seven times, they are listed as Priscilla and Aquila. Two of the times, they're listed as Aquila and Priscilla. That is interesting, not just because there's such a disparity about the female name coming first, but you have to understand that in both the Greek and the ancient world, men were always named first. Always. Like, in the same way that it would be weird for somebody to say, Mr. and Mrs. Amber Sueza. You'd be like, uh, no, I don't think that that's weird. I've never heard that. But you may have, it's not super common anymore, but we're familiar with like not so long ago, even in our parents' and grandparents' time, it wasn't uncommon to refer to Mr. and Mrs. Daniel Sueza, right? We refer to the couple by the man, but not in the scripture. Five out of seven times, they say Mr. and Mrs. Priscilla is essentially what it is, okay? This is really like, it's telling, it's informative. Again, are we going to build a whole theology over this? No, but what it does is it gives us maybe just the tiniest clue that when it came to this ministry couple, potentially Priscilla was actually the leader. She was the one that took point, took charge. She might've been the one that had the gumption to pull aside silver-tongued Apollos and to say to him, hey, you need, to, you need to be corrected a little bit in your understanding here, okay? I think it's really telling that she's listed first. Uh, other ministry couples in the New Testament don't get listed that way. They follow the convention of the day, man first, then the woman. This time it gets switched the vast majority of the times. Why? Maybe because she was the leader between the two. I don't know, can't prove it, but there you go. Have you guys heard of Priscilla and Aquila before? Uh, many of you have. Okay, I, they're, they're kind of familiar if you've been around church. I'll be honest with you. Both of their names sound feminine to me. I always, I'm just, I'm just being real. Aquila doesn't seem like a real manly name. Um, and so I, for some reason in my mind, I always kind of just thought it was, I don't know. I didn't know what I thought. But you study them and it's a really fascinating story. And, um, you know, these guys and another couple that we're going to talk about before we get finished tonight really form 
I don't want to say like an example for Amber and I or something like that, but it's like when we talk about co-leading and ministering together and mm -hmm. stuff like that, it's not just like out of convenience or culture or something. Like I can point to a couple of examples of, of men and women who were married and they did ministry together mm -hmm. in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. It gives me uh, some encouragement.